This episode of Propaganda is brought to you by Oregon State University's eCampus. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Today's workplace requires employees who think creatively and dig for the unique insights that drive change. Expand your passion with the skills that will allow you to be a leader in your field. Earn your economics degree online at Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash econ. This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. In their snappy 1999 hit, Bills, 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 girl group Destiny's Child dishes out some sound financial advice. Don't date a guy who will ruin your credit score. Now you've been maxing on my car. Give me back credit, buy me gifts with my own hands. Haven't paid the first bill, but you better head into the mall. Go on shopping sprees, perpetrating to your friends like you be falling. With a flashy beat behind them, the ladies of Destiny's Child walk through several very mundane financial situations. Your boyfriend borrows your car all day and then doesn't even fill it up with gas? That's a jerk move. Then he borrows your phone, calls a bunch of people, and doesn't pitch in to pay the phone bill? Red flag. Dump him and date a guy who can pull his own weight. It's rare to have our pop culture be this explicit about the relationship between money, gender, and equality. But Bills, Bills, Bills speaks to something real. Gender and race shape our financial lives. And obviously, women usually get the short end of the stick. We fight an uphill battle not only against mooching boyfriends, but against unequal pay and unfair labor laws. Although the way gender impacts our economy is often unspoken, it's baked into the framework of capitalism. And it affects everything from how much we get paid over the course of our whole lifetimes to what shampoo we buy day to day. That's why money is the theme of our summer print issue of Bitch Magazine. The issue, which should be arriving in subscribers' mailboxes right about now, digs into what movies, books, and TV tell us about how money works. On today's episode, we're highlighting awesome work from the money issue, including getting some financial advice about what not to do in your 20s, taking a critical look at freelancing, talking about the politics of the fair trade movement, and hearing why cigarettes were once called freedom torches. Stay tuned. I hate the capitalist system, and I'll tell you the reason why it has caused me so much suffering and my dearest friends to die well i know the problem with most financial websites in my opinion is that they're a oppressively upbeat and b usually geared toward rich people the billfold is the money website for us anxious commoners Started in 2012 by two 20-something friends, the Billfold features essays and interviews about everything from when to tip to the economics of addictive Japanese cat app Neko Atsume. Pro tip, they're trying to get you to pay for more fish for tubs. 
I wrote about the billfold in The Bitch List, in the money issue of Bitch Magazine. And I thought I'd call up the site editor, Esther Bloom, to get some financial advice that she learned the hard way in her 20s. Yes, I have two um, very key pieces of advice, and they're pretty different. On the, on the personal finance side of things, I would say start an IRA as soon as possible. Scrape together the minimum required. Do it through Vanguard or a place that you trust and then contribute as much as you can every year, starting whenever you can. That was the best advice that my father gave me when I was starting out. And then the other piece of advice, which is a little more holistic, is to go into the right career. Because if you try the wrong career first, or if you choose a career for the wrong reasons, you are probably going to lose your first job or two out of college. And you might very well lose your first job or two out of college anyway, but um, you can sort of skip a lot of that hassle if you don't choose the wrong place to work in the first place. But, like, how do you know what the wrong place to work is? I mean, obviously, people well, so, aren't going to go out and say, like, I want the wrong job. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Of course not. But I think a lot of us choose a job based on the wrong criteria. We choose jobs that sound exciting and fields that seem sexy, fields that seem like they would be fun places to work. And in actuality, the most important thing is, can you respect your boss? Can your boss respect you? If you work in a place where your boss does not respect you and or you don't respect your boss, it doesn't matter how exciting and sexy and fulfilling even the field is. You're going to have a horrible time day to day. And you might well do a horrible job at your day to day tasks and end up losing your job. So it's much more important ultimately to find a place where you are a good fit, not the place that sounds best when you talk about it at a party. So did you ever get fired from a job in your 20s? I wouldn't say fired. I was uh, asked to leave a couple times, yes, uh, from my first couple jobs. It was a really important part of my education, um, and I learned a lot from those two experiences. But what I learned primarily was don't try to work in entertainment. Don't do something that just sounds sexy and exciting but is soul-killing on a day-to-day basis. So you got let go, but it totally is okay. I feel like getting let go from a job... That's what everyone fears and could like be crushing to you if you're 22. Oh, it is absolutely crushing. I, I did not have a trust fund. I had nothing to fall back on. And I was always such a good girl. I'd never lost a job before. I'd never even gotten detention before. And all of a sudden, I was, up, I was filing for unemployment. It was terrifying, but it was also really important to learn that I could bounce back from that. I could get another job and then another job and another job. And ultimately, it would be fine. Ultimately, I'd be able to tell the story of my employment history in a way that made it sound funny and, and even important that I lost those first couple of jobs rather than just tragic and awful. That was Esther Bloom of the website The Billfold. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking money, money, money. It's the theme of our current print issue. Consumerism is complicated. On the one hand, buying stuff can feel empowering. I remember the first time as a teenager that I got a paycheck and was able to buy something with my own hard-earned money. I think I probably spent most of my first paycheck on tacos, but it didn't matter. There was that rush, that thrill of, this is mine, all mine. But why does that feel so good? And what unseen forces push us to buy one thing instead of another? That's what Bitch Media creative and editorial director Andy Zeisler explores in her essay, Empowertize Me, which looks at the history of advertisers co-opting feminist language to sell stuff like cigarettes. 
A longer version of this essay is featured in the money issue of Bitch Magazine, as well as in Andy's brand new book, We Were Feminists Once. In 1998, an advertisement for a first USA anniversary series Platinum MasterCard read like this. In a village chapel in upstate New York 150 years ago, the initial bold steps in a revolution that would ensure women the right to vote were taken at the first women's rights celebration at Seneca Falls. And now you can celebrate the anniversary of this milestone in women's rights and the strength and conviction of the courageous suffragettes involved whenever you use your first USA anniversary series Platinum MasterCard. Celebrate women's rights. Apply today. This wasn't the first time that women's liberation had been connected to our power to spend money we didn't have, and it wouldn't be the last. But First USA's linking of women's enfranchisement and their freedom to go into debt in the form of a 1998 credit card come on was an almost admirably shameless co-optation of the language of feminism in the service of capitalism. The bank even promised to send a free women's almanac to cardholders after their first purchase. It's not a stretch to say that modern feminism was co-opted by the market almost as soon as it was born. The white, middle-class new woman of the late 19th and early 20th century, who had leisure enough to chafe against the Victorian ideal of the angel in the house, was an early target of advertisers seeking a fresh demographic. Those advertisers constructed ideal female consumers as mothers and wives who were full of unmet potential, longing to buck convention and participate in public life. For this woman, consumer goods were positioned as one route to autonomy. Shredded wheat wasn't just a cereal product. It was her declaration of independence. Cigarettes were one of the first products that allowed the commercial realm to align itself in market potential, if not political commitment, to emerging women's movements. Smoking was considered such an unseemly activity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that women were often explicitly prohibited from doing so in public. So it made sense that the American tobacco company saw capturing this emerging market as akin to opening a gold mine right in our front yard. The company deftly exploited the first wave of feminism when it hired Edward Bernays, now considered the father of public relations, to craft campaigns that would get more women smoking and buying cigarettes. Bernays initially appealed to women's vanity by proposing cigarettes as slimming aids. Reach for a lucky instead of a sweet, urged print advertisements. But his hunch was that appealing to their growing sense of autonomy might be the real mover of product. In 1929, Bernays and the American Tobacco Company orchestrated a walk for equality down New York's Fifth Avenue, hiring female participants to hold aloft lucky strikes as torches of freedom, while encouraging bystanders to fight another sex taboo by joining them in inhaling the heady smoke of gender equality. In an early example of contrived media virality, the photos of the march caused a national sensation and, as expected, helped nudge the percentage of female cigarette buyers up from 5% in 1923 to 12% post-march. Four decades later, Virginia Slims, the first cigarette explicitly marketed to young professional women furthered Lucky Strike's legacy by trading on the idea that smoking was a pivotal site of liberation. The famous slogan, you've come a long way, baby, suggested that being able to inhale that formerly masculine smoke 
was liberation itself, rather than a byproduct of it. You've come a long way, baby. Now there's a Slim cigarette for women only. New Virginia Slims. As the first cigarette that used women's images to appeal to women as customers, Virginia Slims was an unqualified success for parent company Philip Morris in the first two decades of its existence. By the 1980s, its market share had grown from 0.24% to 3.16%. As the second wave of the women's movement gained momentum and media notice, the opportunities to market products using aggrandizing sales pitches grew. Advertisers were careful not to explicitly name feminism or the current women's liberation movement. The whole point was to capture potential customers who believed enough in the concept to want to support companies that referenced it, but not enough to shun what feminists saw as tools of sexual objectification, including foundation garments, douches, and more. Could this cynical approach be enough to sell Massengill feminine hygiene aerosol douche by using the tagline Freedom Spray? Apparently it could. No more vinegar and water douches for me. They're such a bother. Jane, look. Massengill has a new vinegar and water disposable douche. It's convenient. No artificial anything? Just vinegar and water? The ingredients many doctors recommend. But this is pre-mixed, pre-measured, sanitary. No more bother. Look how cleverly it's designed. Only Massengill has this special design. The vinegar and water disposable from Massengill. It's specially designed. The business of marketing and selling to women literally depends on creating and then addressing female insecurity. And part of the revelatory potential of women's lib involved rejecting the marketplace's sweet-talking promises about life-changing face creams and shampoos, not to mention the entire premise of women as decorative objects. There was good reason for industries that sustained themselves on the self-hatred of women to dread the potential reach of feminist movements. Co-opting the language of liberation to sell their products allowed them to have it both ways, celebrating the spirit of the movement while fostering a new set of insecurities, natural-look cosmetics, anyone? And new aspirational archetypes. Is she calling my douche outdated? They said it's an antique. Massengill just came out with a brand new cleansing design. So? I used it after my period. That's the test. And? You feel a lot fresher. New Massengill. Because it's your body. That's why. Charlie, Revlon's perfume for the new woman that launched in 1973, was the first American fragrance to become a blockbuster, in part because it was Revlon's first to target women under 35. Charlie's iconic ad was a major part of its appeal. In it, model Shelley Hack jumps out of a Rolls Royce and strides confidently down the streets of New York City in a kicky pantsuit, embodying all the freedom and confidence of the women's movement with none of the baggy clothes or scowling. The accompanying jingle assured potential buyers that this was the fun kind of liberation. There's a fragrance that's here today and they called it Charlie. A different fragrance that thinks your way, yeah, they called it Charlie. Kinda young. The Charlie Girl didn't so much reflect the new vision of young, liberated white femininity as it did present it as a superior alternative to actual feminist activism. In her 2013 book, Wonder Women, Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection. Barnard College president and self-described former reluctant feminist Deborah Spar testifies to the power of Charlie's decontextualized liberation. Feminists were loud and pushy, strident and unfeminine, she wrote. 
Charlie, on the other hand, was gorgeous, ladylike, and successful, a working woman and a mom. Who needed feminism if you could have Charlie? For women like Spar, Hack's embodiment of liberation was much more alluring than the real-life agitators who made her possible. And that attitude, goosed by the product and embraced by its consumers, helped lay the groundwork for today's marketplace feminism, in which image is removed from theory and the fun kind of liberation is the most valuable. The history of drawing on feminist language and theory to sell products has been driven by the idea that female consumers are empowered by their personal consumer choices. Indeed, the choice, rather than being a means to an end, is the end itself. The idea that it matters less what you choose than that you have the right to choose is the crux of choice feminism, whose rise coincided with the rapid, near-overwhelming expansion of consumer choice that began in the 1980s. Consumption, always associated with status, became elevated as a measure of liberation and swelled with the self-obsession of the privileged but insecure. As neoliberal, greed is good, if I have an umbrella, it must not be raining rhetoric became the common tongue of the overclass. Luxury beauty products, designer labels, and exercise regimens like buns of steel became liberatory achievements rather than mere consumer goods. The representations of choice in a time of tacit post-feminism translated neatly into what could be called empowertizing, an advertising tactic of lightly invoking feminism in acts of exclusively independent consuming. Empowertizing builds on the idea that any choice is a feminist choice if a self-labeled feminist deems it so, but takes it a little bit further to suggest that being female is in itself a constant source of empowerment. The ego, already so key to effective advertising, is indispensable to empowertizing, with its emphasis on the personal cell that takes the focus off objective value and places it firmly within the buyer's sense of individual mythology. Ads that portrayed women as constantly fiending for chocolate, for instance, were part of the monetization of women's lib in the 1960s and 70s. The new, independent woman, ads implied, could get almost everything she needed from chocolate. But both sexual double standards and the belief that women should remain restrained in all appetites have held fast. So in the 1990s and early 2000s, the empowertizing of chocolate hinged on both transgression portraying both chocolate and its female eaters as sinful and decadent, as well as absolution. Only a chocolate this pure can be this silky and make you savor, sigh, melt. Dove Pure Silk Chocolate. These messages are one part of the larger picture of female consumers encouraged to think of consumption as striking a blow for women's equality rather than just, you know, eating some chocolate. Advertising's pitch to feminists has changed over time. From liberated versions of feminine standbys, the personal douche, the push-up bra, the low-calorie frozen food, to the liberation inherent in consumer choice itself. But here's the thing we all know about advertising to women. The products aim their way from household cleaners to cosmetics to personal care products are pitched to solve a problem that in many cases the consumer might not ever know she had until she was alerted to and or shamed for it. What's that, Dove? My armpits are supposed to be sexier? What recent commercials for the likes of Pantene, Always, and Verizon announce is that finally, 
It seemed possible for the ad industry to reach women without making them feel totally awful about themselves. That's right. After decades of women's movements, that was advertising's big breakthrough. Don't make women feel like shit, and they're more likely to buy your product. That was Andy Zeisler reading her essay, Empowertize Me. See the full version of that essay in the Money issue of Bitch Magazine and in Andy's new book, We Were Feminists Once. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're highlighting work from our summer print issue, the Money issue. For the issue, writer Bonnie Amore looked at the racial and gender politics of the fair trade movement. In this interview, she talks to Bitch Media Associate Editor Amy Lamb about her article, Spend and Save, the Narrative of Fair Trade and White Saviorism. Hi, Bonnie. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited too. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, of course. Um, so I really admire your work and like have been following you for a long time. And I was just so stoked when you had pitched a great piece for the magazine. But before we talk about that piece, um, I guess I just want to talk more about your background. And so you have a blog. It's called Everywhere All the Time, Decolonizing mm-hmm. Travel Culture. And I wanted to for you to talk a little bit more about like why is it important to decolonize travel culture and what does it look like to decolonize travel culture that's a great question that's the question of of everything of all the work um decolonizing travel culture is for me it's it's a question it's like how how do we look critically at the business of tourism and how it its relationship its historical relationship and present his relationship to imperialism and colonialism, how does that affect people of color who not only travel, but who depend on the tourism industry as workers and laborers, usually cheap labor and menial labor? What is what is the relationships between these workers, these communities um, who often experience um, and sort of an occupation, like a presence, like an occupation of foreigners, of Westerners, of mostly white people, Um, coming into their communities uh, and shifting the local economies, the local culture, um, and how those communities relate to their culture. Um, Many times, you know, indigenous cultures and, um, you know, backpackers or other tourists, they like to go places where it's cheap for them to travel, even though they have the money to travel another way. So that that shifts uh, how indigenous people relate to their cultures and if they have to kind of perform them in order to make a buck. Um, So all of that creates very problematic, you know, um, uh, uh, effects for those people, these communities and um, and that industry. It relies on that money that it relies on all that oppression to keep going. Travel writing is the story of that industry. It's the story of tourism. And historically, it's been the story of conquistadors. Uh, colonizers, uh, quote unquote, explorers coming into these lands. And those notebooks, you know, those old uh, field notes from the colonizers, that's really, a lot of people will argue that that's not the birth of travel writing because there is, um, you know, there are other, there, there's lesser known stories of people of color or of other people doing journeys uh, back then that weren't, you know, fucked up. But as far as um, 
as these writings go, the, you know, current, if you open up, you know, Condé Nast Traveler or something else, like it won't look, it won't sound that different from those notebooks. So that's an issue. And it's, it's not really talked about in a big way. If you have travel writing, a lot of people writing these things are, you know, they have the power to be a tourist. And that is just not available and accessible for a lot of people, especially people of color. Um, even if we are from, you know, the quote unquote Western world or, you know, quote unquote developed places. Um, and even for travelers of color in other places, uh, the politics of us moving around the world is is more fraught with with other with these other, you know, power relations that have different effects that just, you know, the the, the what is quote unquote the norm traveler white dude uh, or whatever from the U.S. or whatever. Um, we have totally different um experiences traveling there are more there, there there are different you know ramifications of us moving around the world and then the other side of that is um of people of color who who travel but we don't call that travel right we call that tourism you know there's migration there's there's refugees there's forced migration all of these things are happening in conjunction with uh the story that is travel writing that really supports the industry of tourism so um all of that it for me you know getting to to deep into these issues into these questions and challenging those power structures is um, a big part of decolonizing travel culture as well as kind of reclaiming the voice of who is telling the story about these places around the world. Yeah, I think that's why I've just always really appreciated your work so much because uh, often when we think about like mainstream travel culture, it's uh, it's very white centered. And I really appreciate your work because you're looking at like the intersection of race, travel, class and nationality. And you do it in such a way that's um, uh, that I haven't like really read before that was accessible to me. So I just really mm-hmm. appreciated your work. I just want to oh. thank you. <laughs> um, and so uh, I was so excited when you write, wrote this piece for our latest issue, the money issue called Spend and Save the Narrative of Fair Trade and White Saverism. And in this piece, um, for folks who haven't read it yet, you should pick up a copy. <laughs> it's it's so I, I was so excited when you pitched this because it really um, kind of put into words and had a, a deep analysis of the issues that I felt about like fair trade industries and like fair trade markets or branding. Uh, but I didn't have the all, all the right words and uh, to express my feeling about them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh what fair trade is and what does it mean within like the larger consuming marketplace? Fair trade is generally supposed to be a way to um, equal the equal the the, econ- the global economic workforce, uh, equalize it so that people in disadvantaged countries are making uh, a living wage um, in comparison to people in you know in in countries where the living where the wages. Um, a little fair, higher, obviously. Um, so yeah, it's just about paying people what they, you know, what they deserve, what they, what they can live off of in the place that they're in. Um, and and um, and in your piece, uh, like the companies that you pro- that you highlight, and I, I don't want to say highlight because they're like you're, yeah, are, that, you're, that you're low lighting. Um, um, they often are like you know, websites and organizations and companies that are run by white women where they um, sell handicrafts or clothing made by women of color um, from the global South. Mm-hmm. So I just want you to talk about like what influenced you to s- tackle this specific topic. Um, what influenced me was 
my experiences. I mean, I'm Ecuadorian. Uh, I, I'm also Guatemalan. Um, indigenous culture history, you know, present is is a much. It's a big part of my life as a person who is diasporic, first generation immigrant. And when I see these these shops or ads or whatever websites for these, um, you know, fair trade companies that are supposed to, that, you know, the story is usually, you know, we're we're going to sell you these wonderful, you know, culturally important uh, handicrafts made by these collectives, usually of women of color in, you know, what's usually the global south or in Asia and and they're going to make more money. They're going to be able to sustain themselves. They're going to get more empowerment that, you know, that women need that, you know, uh, that they're not getting otherwise because they lived in such an uncivilized and unequal, you know, place. Um, it's just like, huh? you know, I, I always like, you know, my ears prick up. Like, I'm I don't think that that's true. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just the just the goal that is kind of like we're going to we're going to involve ourselves and we're going to help people. Um, when, when that's coming from white people or a lot of white women who own these companies a lot of the time, um, it's, I, I'm hesitant. I'm, I, I'm like, I want to know more. So that made me want to research this, uh, subject and these companies a lot more, um, as well as, you know, this, the story that they put forth that is just, um, you know, using that savior narrative. It's just invoking that historical narrative that, you know, humanitarians use, NGOs use, um, governments use. It, 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 but right now, it's a, in this um, in this uh, market, it's a capitalist thing. So, um, using that savior narrative that is, you know, used to kind of like defend military intervention and all these other things that we know that have, you know, historically not been helping these communities, um, doing it in this capitalistic market in the name of female empowerment, uh, it, it's, it's really uh, concerning. And, you know, when I looked into it, it's, you know, I had good reason to think why. There's this, I mean, your piece is full of really great quotes. Um, but one of this that speaks to what you're talking about now is this quote where you where the piece says, the presumptuousness of claiming you can, quote, eradicate poverty and gender inequality by selling bracelets to yuppies exposes one fallacy of corporate feminism that leaning into capitalism can heal the symptoms of the system without actually challenging it, uh, which, which is the entire, uh, like fair trade branding. It's like, if mm-hmm. you, if you buy this, then, uh, these Brown and black women will have better lives without questioning, uh, what it means to live under a capitalist system that, um, mm-hmm. harms them. And so that, which leads me to another great quote in your piece, uh, where you say, quote, the central paradox of fair trade capitalism relies on inequity to keep these shops open. Uh, so, mm-hmm. like, you know, my mind imploded a little bit there <laughs> because <laughs> because, you know, your thesis is that um, the reason why these shops are open is because the very machine that drives capitalism, that drives you to go shop at these shops is what is keeping um, like these these people in these situations uh, oppressed in their way. Mm-hmm. As well as the mentality, like you have to be in the mentality that I have, I have something to offer, or I have a way of thinking that these people don't, because if they did, then they would be able to do it themselves. Or I'm, you know, I'm endowed with some sort of power, but I haven't searched and seen why do I have more power than these people, you know, 
Um, so just that narrative that it takes to, to be in that space that you go to a shop and be like, oh, I am going to help these people. You know, that's something historical. That's something daily that uh, a lot of these women who not only start these companies, but shop from them, um, they believe in that, you know. Another really great quote from your piece, uh, you point out that the bodies of women of color are hyper visible while remaining invisible, seen but not known. That really sort of... Um, help me to like visualize what you're saying because often in these types of fair trade stores like on their websites they it's it feels like they're using women of color as props to sell these products that ostensibly help them um but then we don't know anything about them usually beyond just the fact that they're a person of color living in a developing country absolutely a lot of the times they don't have names but there's a lot of research on this um They've done research to see how people react to the images, to the names, how much of the story that they need. Because a big part of a lot of these websites, um, these companies who have their websites where people can buy these things off of, um, is, you know, just giving a little blurb. And those blurbs of the workers, the artisans, the women, are, are they're almost all the same. They're just so identical that you get the idea that they don't they don't really think of these people as people as who have, you know, totally different lives and personalities and are facing different um, kinds of oppression and just different difficulties in their lives. It's just like this one woman, you know, the global South worker, you know, and the sexism that she experiences um, through capitalism. It's just, um, it's it's very sad, you know, and it's like, it's just it's meant to be like this sappy image um, that gets, you know, white people and their white guilt, you know, it monetizes it and they capitalize off of that. So what can people do to sort of support uh, marginalized folks, but without supporting this system of capitalism? <laughs> That's, it's super difficult. Right? <laughs> I was like, tell me, how do you make world peace? That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it's huge because I think some of these um, critiques of these companies might seem, you know, that that whole the thesis that, you know, that, that they have to, you know, be involved in the system of capitalism in order to free them of the same thing and how that doesn't make sense. I mean, it, it's it's just one part of it. Right. And it, it's very simple. But the thing is that there could be other ways. There are like other options and all, other alternatives. And I think not all of these companies are are totally shitty and are trying to be fair to their artisans in how they communicate their stories and their lives and how much they pay them, et cetera. Um, but in general, just this um, humanitarian by way of capitalism um, uh, work, it, it market, it's, it's going to be, you know, automatically a fail um, because you're setting up the people that you're trying to help in, you know, without dignity. There's, there's like, they don't, they're not that empowered. It's like something we're going to give to them, not something they're going to claim for themselves. So for me, you know, the answer is always activism. How can we support women in their local struggles in these different parts of the world? And how do we, um, as people diasporic or however, white people in the Western world or the quote unquote first world, how can we support that and not omit um, the political uh, ramifications of our presence in these places and how we, you know, involve ourselves in their local economies. How can we support them economically without intervening? That's always going to be, you know, an issue at this time in the world where so much damage has been done. Um, 
So you want to, if you know, if you want to get some, you know, crafts made by these women and actually support them, you have to do a little bit of digging and find something um, that you think seems trustworthy, you know, that treats them with dignity. And it's not just some white woman making a few bucks off of it um, and supporting their local struggles. That was writer Bonnie Amor talking with editor Amy Lamb. Bonnie's article in the summer print issue of Bitch is called Spend and Save, the Narrative of Fair Trade and White Saviorism. You're listening to Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about money. It's the theme for our summer issue of our print magazine, and it's the ongoing theme of our lives, whether we like it or not. Over the past few years, our economy has been changing in a big way, shifting toward a more freelance-based system. A gig economy is what they call it. On my left wrist, I always wear a fancy gold watch. It was my grandfather's, a gift to him from his bosses after he'd worked for a quarter century at the same company. Careers like his where you stick with the same company for 25 years, working your way up the ladder until they reward you with a watch, are few and far between these days. Instead, people are more likely to work as contractors or freelancers, glomming together two or three jobs to make a living, or jumping from short-term position to short-term position. In the money issue of Bitch Magazine, freelance writer Sarah Gray looks at how the gig economy impacts women and people of color. Here, she reads an abridged version of her article, between a boss and a hard place. It's 2004. I've lost my voice. I can't even whisper, which is a problem since my job at a Manhattan legal services provider involves running the switchboard and sweet-talking attorneys. After a week, my boss calls me into a conference room to discuss my options. You could file for short-term disability, he says. But this is the real world. If you do, you'll be blacklisted. It's 2009. I'm nine months pregnant. I'm working long hours at the translation agency to prepare clients for my maternity leave. My boss has granted me two weeks' pay, a generous offer by U.S. standards and my partner and I have saved up what we hope will be enough to get us through three months without my salary. It's 2010. I'm having an abortion. My daughter is five months old. I've just returned from maternity leave, and I'm working a split shift. I don't get much sleep, and I can't seem to concentrate on my job. Part of me wants this second baby, but I know it would mean getting fired. And who would hire a pregnant woman? It's 2015. My daughter has a fever. I take the afternoon off to take her to the pediatrician. I'll be working late into the evening, but I'm a freelancer. I can make my own hours as long as the work gets done on time. I didn't get much done last week because my Crohn's disease flared up, so I'm behind. Luckily for us, my partner has a traditional job that provides us with health insurance. Back home, I park my daughter in front of a movie and head upstairs to work. I'm just starting to concentrate when... Mommy! 
the gig economy, the freelance workforce, the precariat, whatever you want to call it, there's no question that all over the industrialized world, traditional full-time employment is giving way to independent contract-based labor. As employers cut down on benefits and flexibility, more and more people, especially parents and those with chronic illnesses or disabilities, are getting squeezed out of so-called regular workplaces and into the freelance economy. What they find there is a whole new labor market that comes with a fresh set of obstacles and some benefits too. While magazines like Fast Company and Inc. love to cheerlead the growth of entrepreneurship and small business, the truth is a little more complicated. It isn't that the spirit of capitalism and the Protestant work ethic have suddenly overtaken the masses. It's that big corporations and startups alike have realized that it's cheaper and easier to subcontract labor than to employ people, pay them salaries, provide them with benefits, and assume legal and tax responsibility for them. The companies that are thriving now have few employees of their own. Uber, for example, didn't invest wads of capital in buying a fleet of vehicles and hiring drivers. It simply built a platform through which independent drivers with their own vehicles could find paying fares. Similarly, startups like Handy and Homejoy provide apps where independent workers offer services like house cleaning and furniture assembly. In industries where technically independent workers often have to pay fees to the house for the privilege of working, like hairdressing and sex work, many are instead venturing out on their own. And in positions where workers have traditionally been in-house and even unionized, like newspaper journalists and college professors, freelancing in various forms has become so common that full-time employment can seem almost quaint. From the corporate perspective, this is genius. More profit, less responsibility, and a much smaller investment. From the worker's perspective, however, it's bleak. Where there were once good union jobs that could support a family, there are now only gigs to be chased, constantly. 53 million Americans, 34% of the nation's workforce, are now classified as freelancers. That number spiked in 2008 and 2009 as the global economy slid into recession and U.S. employers stopped hiring and started firing. Faced with few prospects for employment, workers of all kinds began taking on freelance jobs, part-time or full-time. It's now common for people who used to be, say, union grocery store workers to deliver groceries for Instacart as independent contractors. About half the freelance workforce is classified as self-employed, meaning they operate some sort of business. The other half consists of temporary and contingent worker, most of which involves low-paying service work and manual labor. Corporations no longer need to invest in recruiting and maintaining a skilled workforce and keeping it satisfied. There's no incentive to tend to or even acknowledge workers' humanity when there's an army of replacements standing at the ready. While the U.S. economy has, at least by some formal measures, begun to recover, official unemployment is now down to 5.5% from a high of 10% in 2009, wages have remained stagnant, and the trend toward outsourced, casualized labor has only increased. This often involves deprofessionalizing once prestigious jobs. The American Association of University Professors, for example, 
has found that more than half of university faculty are now classified as part-time contingent labor, despite working more than full-time hours. In 1969, just 21% of college teaching jobs were non-tenure track. In 2013, that number had jumped to 66%. So what does this mean for women? In the 70s and 80s, career feminists focused on getting women equal pay and a seat in the boardroom. But the Equal Rights Amendment failed to pass, and the pay gap has persisted, particularly for women of color. Some women have indeed made it into the higher echelons of the corporate and political worlds, such as Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg, whose best-selling book Lean In urges women to focus on career advancement. However, this brand of feminism tends to have a blind spot when it comes to class. Yahoo! CEO Marissa Meyer, for example, drew criticism when she had a nursery built in her office for her newborn child, but banned her employees from working from home. So here's the equation. We've got lack of paid maternity leave, plus inadequate sick days, plus little flexibility, plus unequal pay that doesn't always cover the cost of childcare. It doesn't take a math whiz to realize that this combination squeezes women out of the workplace. As a result, the number of stay-at-home mothers has risen since the start of the millennium. It's now 29% according to the Pew Research Center. The number of women freelancers, too, has increased. A freelancers' union study found that women now make up 53% of the independent workforce. The Bureau of Labor Statistics found in 2013 that all other things being equal, female freelancers out-earn male freelancers by $10 a week. This suggests that women who were undervalued in more traditional workplaces can earn more when they ditch the boss and take their chances in the freelance sector. That said, the factors that persistently disadvantage women and non-binary people economically don't disappear. Working outside a traditional office setting can mean freedom from a host of gendered restrictions. No pantyhose, no high heels, no extra tight uniforms or dry cleaning bills. For those who work alone, there's much less emotional labor. Faking smiles, making small talk, soothing others' feelings, and more freedom to drop difficult or abusive clients. Indeed, the power of consent, of saying no to the projects that smell like trouble and the clients you hate, is perhaps the single greatest advantage to freelance employment, contingent though it is upon an abundance of work. The turn toward a freelance economy isn't a solution for sexism. It won't end the pay gap or discrimination in the workplace, and it can't take the place of real systemic changes to labor law, health care, child care, and the way we view gender. For that, we need mass movements for social change and an intersectional feminism that incorporates struggles around race, class, disability, and more. In the short-term context of an economy in which employers have abandoned any pretense of caring for workers' needs as human beings, though, freelancing is serving as a stopgap measure created by this necessity. One that, from contract to contract and tax season to tax season, we're figuring out as we go. That was Sarah Gray, freelance writer and editor based in Philadelphia, whose topics include food, community, books, language, and politics. 
The full version of her article, Between a Boss and a Hard Place, is in the money issue of Bitch. member of Destiny's Child writing a song about money. This is obviously pure fantasy. I can't sing or dance, but hey, a girl can dream. So my song would be something about how much I hate how much I need money. I have such a complicated relationship with money. I don't want to want you, but I do. <laughs> is that catchy? Maybe I'll leave the money songs to the R&B professionals. That's what they're paid for, right? In the meantime, go check out the money issue of Bitch Magazine. You got a sneak peek here on the show today, but the actual print issue is jam-packed with more amazing writers, artists, and feelings. Thanks to all the great people on today's show, Esther from The Billfold, Sarah Gray, Bonnie Amore, and our own Amy and Andy. Go forth and spend wisely, everyone. This episode of Propaganda is brought to you by Oregon State University's eCampus. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Today's workplace requires employees who think creatively and dig for the unique insights that drive change. Expand your passion with the skills that will allow you to be a leader in your field. Earn your economics degree online at Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash econ. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.